2: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the author of Politico's Brussels playbook column. It's been another spicy Brexit week. I'm just back from London, where, like Jean-Claude Juncker, Donald Tusk and Nigel Farage, lots of people were talking about the prospect of a second Brexit referendum, or reversing the Brexit decision. I'm not convinced it's going to happen, but... What's clear to me is that the EU is using psychological warfare tactics to try and soften the UK up for a softer Brexit. Tangentially to Brexit, Emmanuel Macron and Theresa May are meeting today, Thursday, in the UK. That's showing you some of the prospects that the UK has to shape new bilateral relationships after Brexit, but there's a limit to what they can talk about. They're focusing on security and defence because pretty much everything else that Emmanuel Macron can talk about is actually an EU legal power. Romania has also been in the headlines this week, and not for good reasons. The country is going to have its third Prime Minister in just seven months, and that person could be a near-invisible member of the European Parliament, could be a Reacher Dancila. She's most memorable for giving an interview in July 2017, where she claimed to be someone who loved reading, but couldn't nominate a single book she'd read, couldn't nominate a single career achievement, or nominate anyone she thought of as a political role model raising serious questions about how she's going to handle the big decisions if she does get to the EU summit table. Before we move into the main interview this week with the Estonian president, the first ever head of state to appear on EU Confidential, we're going to start the week with a preview of the World Economic Forum in Davos that's starting next week on January 22. Politico is going to be there in force, and we're also going to be doing a pop-up podcast, so you can look forward to daily fights of news and gossip, and all the inside information you can handle go to soundcloud or to apple podcasts and you can get it every single morning from us now we'll talk to florian ada one of our managing editors here at politico who's going to join me on the slopes and in the chalets of Davos. Joining me now on the podcast is Florian Ader, one of our managing editors here at Politico, who is going to be my Davos bunkmate next week. So we are going to do a bit of a preview of the 48th annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Welcome, Florian. Thank you. Very much looking forward to next week also. Indeed. So it's going to be a huge lineup. They have 70 heads of state or government and 38 heads of international organizations. And that runs through from the Prime Minister of India, Mr Modi, who will open the forum, through to President Trump of the United States who will close the forum, with Emmanuel Macron and Theresa May as some meat in the middle of the sandwich, 10 leaders from Africa, nine from the Middle East, six from Latin America. It's a stellar lineup. Uh, Who are you most looking forward to hearing from?
0: I think I'm most looking forward to hear from Donald Trump because it's the first time since the year 2000 that the American president goes to Davos and then that American president, the one who spoiled the party last year, actually, if you remember, uh, whose inauguration speech was right at the, at the last day of the Davos forum and was really not the message that the, the forum usually wants to spread across the world. Also, this year's theme is uh, creating a consensus uh, or something like that uh, in a fractured world And Donald Trump, actually, after or when he announced that he would join the Davos crowd, he said that he would campaign for America first and that he was very happy to meet all the other leaders to tell them how great his strategy is. So very, you know, egoistic in Davos terms. And I would say that that will create quite some interesting tensions. One of the things I like about the forum is it's a very positive place. People
2: are looking for solutions. Now, maybe they can be so positive because they're mostly very rich people who have very nice lives so they don't necessarily have a lot to worry about but also I sometimes think that the theme is overthought a little bit so if we go back to that theme it's creating a shared future out of a fractured world well it sounds like a fancy way to say that rich people should give people without so much money a little bit more of
0: that money well I don't know I mean I would read it more as a kind of how to as the question how to overcome populism How to overcome those new nationalisms that we see everywhere in the world, from the United States to the UK, and also in smaller, kind of in some smaller structures like in Catalonia. So I would guess this was the thought behind it. And another notable element this year is that there are six
2: female co chairs. It's an all female lineup for the first time, the people guiding uh, the structure of the program. So I think that was probably a well-judged anticipation of the global mood, given everything that we've seen around Me Too and harassment issues. In terms of Politico's presence, we're beefing up our output this year. You can, as always, sign up to the Davos Playbook, our daily insider's guide to what is going on at the WEF. But we'll also have uh, this podcast. We'll be doing that on a daily basis. Uh, Florian and I will be giving you a take on what's happening uh, up the mountain, along with our executive editor, Matt Kaminsky, and a short uh, featured guest interview each day. So keep an eye out for that from Monday onwards next week the 22nd to the
3: 26th of January.
2: And now it's time to hear from the President of Estonia, Kirsty Kailialaid. She caught up with me in Estonia's permanent representation to the EU, where she'd come in from meeting Jean-Claude Juncker, someone she got to know very well when she worked for 12 years at the European Court of Auditors in Luxembourg. And she dropped some news about where she thinks the EU budget should be headed. So, President Kirsti Alad correct? Kylie Kälyalaid, welcome to the podcast. Estonia has been setting quite a number of world firsts with its digital policy, but I don't know if you know it, but you're setting another world first today. You're the first head of state to join the EU confidential podcast.
3: So, oh, wonderful! Yeah. Thank you for this opportunity because without you, it wouldn't happen. Obviously.
2: Yes, but without you, it definitely wouldn't be happening. So. Um, I thought maybe we would just start by checking in on why you're in Brussels. It's the 100th anniversary of Estonia re-establishing its independence and I hear there's a big concert on tonight.
3: Yes indeed, there is a concert and you know this concert we have been planning for a couple of years because of course we were thinking that in addition to celebrating the 100th year of the birth of Estonian state together with lots of states in our region this year. We were also thinking we would be celebrating the beginning of our EU Council presidency when we set the date and of reserve course, the, because uh, they reserve moved it the forward Council because forward. of Brexit didn't Exactly they? but I have to say that uh, I have a certainly better feeling going into this concert and into this important year for my country because it's the birthday year with our EU Council presidency now behind us because we did it and we know we were successful and this is a wonderful feeling to take forward into this year which is your birthday we have needed a lot of the uh, European value based support to reach this birthday free and prosperous. And to do it right now, when we have also paid back, we have delivered a council presidency where we worked hard for the whole of the European Union, forgetting all home issues, forgetting all home animosities for the time being. This feels like such a birthday present to ourselves.
2: And now, just before you came to meet me, you were meeting with Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Commission President. Is, was that just a bit of a catch up between old friends in Luxembourg or did you have an official agenda that you were going through? I came
3: for a message. And President Juncker knew I need this message and we in the Baltic States needed this message. And this is that while we are preparing for the discussion of the next financial perspective, we need to have assurance that there is continuity of the projects which are currently ongoing on the CEF the um, European big uh, projects uh, in our region and probably there are other countries who need the same kind of reassurance. Mm-hmm. And President Juncker delivered this reassurance to us mm-hmm. that uh, definitely the Rail Baltic project uh, will be able to continue on the next uh, financial perspective according to the current rules set in place because mm-hmm. this is very important for involvement of private sector for example in the project because you cannot calculate the net present value of any project unless you know the financing rules mm-hmm. and, and possibilities. And, and was
2: that a general fear, or did it come out of things like Brexit potentially disrupting the budget?
3: I think indeed because we know that there will have to be a lot of change to the financial perspective. In mm-hmm. fact I am hoping for a lot of change because we have lots of common supranational goals which we need to develop and and that would mean that we are by the way in Estonia ready also to rise our contributions to EU budget so we are not sticking to 1% uh uh, sealing. That's a very offer.
2: You might absolutely. start a race to the top with that offer. Uh,
3: absolutely. We, we understand that we have supranational goals, but in order to fulfill those, we need also to rearrange what needs to be rearranged within the budget current framework and scheme. So we are ready to discuss and analyze what needs to be done to the European Union budget in the future, but we cannot afford that the project which is entering construction phase uh, in 2018-19 will have any delays because there is doubt about what is going to happen afterwards. And this was perfectly understood by President Juncker. And he told me to go public on this that uh, he promised.
2: You're hearing it here first on EU Confidential. Um, And maybe I wanted to ask a little bit about where you and Estonia sees itself geopolitically now. I mean, I know a lot of people use labels like the former Soviet state and things like that. And people get very annoyed by that. And maybe you see yourself in the north of Europe rather than the east of Europe and so on. But I wanted to sort of hear in your own words, like where you see the country today.
3: You know, we had a saying um, even during the Soviet Union occupation of Estonia, because indeed we were never part of the Soviet Union. We were simply occupied uh, by the Soviet Union, which is a different status. But we were always uh, remembering that we Finland, at least in the free world, it is the language which joins us. And you know, now we are joking with Finns that by now it's the only thing which actually separates us because it is slightly different. Everything else is the same. Mm -hmm. Our economy is fully intertwined with Nordic economies. We have also a low level of bureaucracy which brings companies to our country, etc. So we are mutually benefiting from this Nordic region we have there, up north, economically. Mentally as well, of course, we uh, think very much similarly, simply because we are small, open economies. We are small, open countries who depend in the global stage about the ability of our uh, international cooperation to rest on value base and rule base. This is extremely important for all countries in the region and this is where we stand geopolitically. We stand on the liberal democratic value base.
2: I can think of another way you're not connected to Finland. But it gets me excited, and that is the idea of the tunnel that could be built between Tallinn and Helsinki. Now, I know maybe that's a a long way off, and you've got things like the high-speed connection on trains to to build across the Baltic countries, Mm -hmm. but is it really possible that you could make this... 80-kilometer tunnel, I think.
3: Technologically, we know it is nowadays possible, but of course, it does depend uh, on the execution of the Rail Baltic railways, because Mm -hmm. uh, you would indeed not need that much of the Finnish current cargo volume to Mm -hmm. pass through Rail Baltic to make that project feasible. And of course, this volume will quickly grow if you had also a quick train link between Finland and Estonia underneath the Gulf of Finland. So you need the trains
2: first, and then we can do feasibility on the tunnel. The trains
3: simply are coming first, Mm -hmm. because there is the uh, EU project, and the end of it should be 2025. Mm -hmm. So uh, it is exactly the right time now to take the next step and start discussing, and and in fact much more than discussing, because the counties who think where the tunnel would uh, well enter or exit the Finnish or Estonian side, they have also reserved space for it. So we have uh, already... uh, for close to 10 years, been uh, thinking, discussing, doing the pre-feasibility analysis, I wouldn't call them yet studies, that would be too Mm far-fetched. But indeed, we need to plan uh, 30 years ahead, North, South transit corridor for the European Union is not defined from starting from Tallinn but is defined from Helsinki towards somewhere in, in Portugal or Spain I don't okay. remember exactly where the other end was but the corridor is defined longer than we can cover with railways so mm-hmm. definitely uh, there is an element of the European attention and finally it will all come down to the ability to demonstrate that it will be feasible to Mm -hmm. whomever because uh, it used to be that public money was considered cheaper then I think during the financial crisis we realized that public money could actually be more expensive than private money and right now I don't see the difference so uh, for me this is totally unimportant whoever gets there first and whoever has a business model first, uh, that's fine with me. But I'm definitely adamant that we need to make sure that our European common market keeps developing, because mm-hmm. otherwise there is simply no business case.
2: Now, another thing I learned today walking over to these offices is that you're running, or Estonia is running, for the Security Council at the United Nations. Yes. So it's you never stop, basically. How is that campaign going? Is it is it sort of something you were planning and then you had to wait for the presidency of the EU to be over or you're now just getting moving with it?
3: No, in fact you had to apply quite a long time ago. Our mm-hmm. application was submitted 2005. Wow. And, uh, I did not know that. Yes. <laughs> and it's for the period 2021. So mm-hmm. uh, now you are in, uh, by definition in the active uh, campaign phase uh, for this. And you know, It is something which I feel is very useful as a process because it forces our diplomats and our politicians to keep on standing on the tiptoes like they were during the council presidency. Mm. During the council presidency, we had to work much more closely with Africa, for example, to organize the EU-African Union summit to understand those regions, which are far away from us, much better. And I see this as a continuation, that it's a process of uh, finding friends globally, Mm -hmm. promoting your uh, ideas globally, your thinking globally, your business globally. And this is something we need to do anyway. Just having this goal, uh, being the member of the Security Council, makes us more focused on this objective of standing on our tiptoes, because it's a useful objective, useful goal. Mm-hmm. We believe that small countries are much more sensitive about the, let's say, uh, general uh, instabilities, be they uh, geopolitically related, climate related, whatever related. Uh, you could see that small countries have a different sensitivities, and these sensitivities should be brought also to the Security Council table.
2: When we think about security issues and geopolitics, Mm -hmm. we often circle back to Russia these days. Mm -hmm. And I was reading uh, in a British newspaper this morning on my way back from London on the Eurostar uh, that Sweden has now decided it would reissue a booklet to all citizens describing things they can do in the event of crisis or war. And that sort of seemed like it's going back to Cold War era fears, and it seemed to be very much motivated by Russia. And of course, Sweden doesn't have the benefit of NATO membership, so I know it's a different situation. Um, but I wonder sort of where, where Estonia is at in its Russia relations, in its preparation against whatever threats it might see on its uh, borders.
3: First of all, I want to set one thing straight very often I hear the narrative that we in the Baltic states are somehow, well, happy that we told you so. Russia is still maybe a potential security problem for Europe. This is not at all absolutely not true. I mean, the Soviet Union broke down and Boris Yeltsin uh, was acknowledging the uh, right of the Baltic states to uh, rejoin uh, the international community of free states. We didn't think this will turn out this way. We definitely thought that Russia will undertake exactly the same development path to mm-hmm. a democratic nation as we ourselves were, uh, were undertaking. Our understanding of the oppression of the communist regime was exactly the same. So we didn't expect it to turn out this way. We definitely didn't want it to turn out this way. And we are definitely in no way benefiting from the fact that it turned out this way because we are losing on every count. Our economies could cooperate with free market Russia, uh, which is also well rich enough to buy our goods, for mm-hmm. example, much better than it than it can now. We have sanction mechanism. Of course, our agricultural sector had to suffer from it, but no one is complaining because we realize that this is a necessary measure to, to take and we, of course, uh, are the advocates of the sanction regime against Russia. We are very disappointed in, uh, in how this has all turned out. And yet we are very happy to see that all our partners and allies share this analysis, which you also demonstrated with your example from the Sweden. The unpredictability we are facing from the Russian side, this is something which we uh, all need to keep in mind.
2: I think some people don't realise how frequent the incursions, for example, knowing that the Belgian Air Force intercepted mm-hmm. Russian jets over mm-hmm. the North Sea. I think people don't necessarily think Russia acts in that way in those parts of Europe. So it is Friend, it is kind of
3: I think, a regular uh, threat, isn't it's, it? it's uh, in a way it's uh, one of the issues which is very well understood. I mean since Ukrainian crisis erupted, I mean as places as far as Portugal have had airspace violations as they are called. And indeed, uh, we see them uh, quite often as well. Part of the reason, by the way, (laughs) in Estonia is is technical, because there is a airspace pocket, which Mm -hmm. very often uh, planes tend to uh, go straight through. Mm -hmm. And and of course, uh, a polite country wouldn't do this, uh, but this is indeed a common feature. The Baltic Air Police mission uh, by our uh, allies is something which uh, clearly shows that we stand for the uh, territorial integrity of the whole NATO space. Uh, The enhanced forward presence by NATO actually sends exactly the same message. And and sometimes Russia says that because of the enhanced forward presence, they now need to revamp uh, their uh, equipment and uh, and rethink their their strategy, but this is not true. In fact, they have been rising the defense expenditure quite a long time. Mm-hmm. There is nothing better for us to, uh, than sticking together. Yeah. We are doing more and more every day, and this is something which is good. We have also the EU Center of Excellence established in Helsinki, dealing uh, in these matters. We have more and more European politicians openly talking about and telling to their people uh, that this is the threats we are we are facing. Every little step helps. And it's not a Russia-centered problem. I think it's a common problem of how to understand what is information nowadays and what is information worth having. And in this way, I don't want to be narrowly centered on uh, on Russia on, or on any state actor. I think we, in general, need to learn that uh, everything we hear needs a double-check nowadays, maybe triple-check.
2: Indeed, I couldn't agree more. Now, one thing that I think anyone listening would be intrigued by is a system I heard about last year, and I didn't explain it very well when I learnt about it. And it's Estonia's system for having a designated survivor in the event of some kind of really serious threat. So I thought maybe instead of me misunderstanding it, I might ask if you would explain a little bit how that works and is it like the American system where we now have this television series in the US talking about the system where someone stays behind from an event like the State of the Union to make sure... The Republic Continues... How does it work in Estonia? It's much
3: more interesting in television normally than in everyday life. Every government has a replacement architecture and, and it has it has a, uh, routines in place that if not all ministers can gather, if there is no quorum, if, if the government cannot uh, join, if the parliament cannot join, everybody has these uh, rules in place and there is nothing particularly in Estonia which we need to explain. So actually I'm quite sure that, uh, that there is nothing to explain in this sense. But what is interesting is uh, that we actually have our data about. Our state is always also somewhere outside. We have, we are developing the Mm -hmm. uh, uh, data data embassy in Luxembourg, but I'm always very angry when people say this is a preparation for losing uh, geographical independence. It is not at all. It is a normal security measure. I think every country should nowadays take because everybody has digital registries, and they should actually make sure that they have uh, copies which are timestamped, so that you would finally always know which copy of your state. Uh, is the right copy at a particular uh, moment in time. And it's a wonderful project between Estonia and Luxembourg, another small and quite flexible country, because it's, it's small, it can be as flexible as we are. This is something which uh, I would advocate every country, while it is taking technology more into account in providing public uh, sector services, mm-hmm. uh, should actually consider doing. How do you make sure that you still have your copies intact if something goes wrong because of a hybrid attack or cyber attack inside the country? Nothing special, of course, mm-hmm. every bank does it, and lots of banking systems. are. quite quite as big as state systems. So uh, there is, again, no technological development by public sector needed. It's just, uh, I wouldn't even call it quick following. I would call it, well, reasonable following of what is anyway going on in private Mm -hmm. sector.
2: Thank you, Madam President. And we wish you a good concert tonight.
3: Thank you. And it was wonderful again to talk to you. Not the first time. I'm quite sure it will not be the last time.
2: Absolutely not the last time. (laughs) And now it's time to welcome back the Brussels podcast panel. It's a special lineup this week. We've got Lena Rabarous Welcome back, Lena. Hi, Ryan. And filling in for Alva Finn, Beth Chamberlain. Hi, Beth.
4: Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me.
2: It's great to have both of you with us. Uh, we're going to start today with a dear Politico advice request. And it comes from an economics student at the University of Amsterdam who's requested anonymity. So we're going to respect that. And they're trying to decide whether they should start a PhD in economics or go for the opportunity of an internship in Brussels because they're keen to get involved in the EU institutions. They have the complication of a partner from a non-EU country who wouldn't automatically be able to have working and residency rights if they followed this person to Brussels. So why don't we dive on in, Lena? What's your advice on how worthwhile a Brussels internship is?
4: It's always worthwhile to come and live in a capital and a city like Brussels. It's so cosmopolitan, it's big, you can be easily in in one dinner, you will have uh, seven, eight nationalities, different languages. It's very culturally very rich. Internship in the commission is something everybody is trying to, to get. Now, it depends on his or her career aspirations in life. Never to forget, of course, we have an overload of interns in Brussels and they keep hopping from one internship to another, to another, and then they end up being 24, 25, and still they don't have a real job. So if you want to come to Brussels, be in the commission and then do your PhD in a year time, you still have this offer, great, but put for yourself a timeline not to stay and keep hopping from one internship to another. But Coming to Brussels, absolutely, it's worthwhile.
2: Very smart advice. Beth, what's your take on it?
1: Well, I come from an interesting position because I actually only have a bachelor's, and here Me I am. Too. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, I am married to someone who has a PhD, so I've seen both sides. And I can say even removing Brussels from the equation, I think any time you're going to embark on such a long course of study, it should really be something that you give solid thought too. So I think if you want to go down the route of the PhD, really think about what are the tangibles that you want to get out of that. Why do you want to do the PhD? Clearly you have a talent for research, which is wonderful, that is very hard to come by, but I would really encourage you to think about, okay, what do I want at the end of this PhD track? If it's still to be in Brussels, if it's still to be a part of that EU world, then I agree with Lena. I actually think that you should probably come here, test the waters. If that's what you want in the future, maybe come and see if that's what you want before putting that off by five years. But if you want to keep your options even further open, or if you say, I really love research, then maybe dive right in and go for that PhD. And you know, in certain countries, like Germany, having a PhD is almost a prerequisite in some mm-hmm. positions. So mm-hmm. it really can give you even more options. If you choose to go outside of that EU policy world.
2: And I think if I added anything to the mix, it would be that relationships and connections matter a lot in Brussels. There's always more people than there are jobs. So you need to know where to look for the openings. You need people who will tip you off when something is coming off. And you're going to get a lot more of that by doing the internship than a PhD, potentially. But I also wonder if there's another option that we haven't thought of, or or maybe it's not sort Of possible for you, but I wonder whether you could do something like graduate training programs in economics where you're because what I worry is via both PhD and internship, you both of them are routes that could see you not getting a lot of income for a number of years, and that's a lot harder than to get the rest of your life going, whether that is paying for mortgages or weddings or things like that. And maybe that third way gives you more options later on down the track, would be my thought. Any final feedback?
4: don't forget your partner ask him or her it takes two always
2: and did you have to do some subsidy of mr phd beth
1: yes maybe a, maybe a little bit uh-huh, <laughs> a uh-huh, little uh-huh. bit um but i will say that as a non-eu citizen him having a phd definitely made it easier for us to come here to europe because it is a very special skill that not everyone has mm-hmm. so it has did give us that flexibility um I will make also a little plug that we will be having the Politico EU Studies Fair in Brussels. Of course. Exactly. In February. You should come on down
2: and check it out live. Oh, in fact, anyone else who has this dilemma should come and check it live in February. Excellent plug. Now it's time to move on to a new segment of the podcast. So we're trialing this out. Bear with us if it goes horribly wrong, but we think it's going to be very amusing. It's a new segment called MEP of the Week. Yay! So what we've done is we've put in the names of all 750 MEPs into a box. It's the thing I'm jiggling here right now. It's a blue box as well. It's (laughs) a blue box. And we're each going to draw a name out of that box. And then we're going to try and share everything we know about that member of the European Parliament. And then the person that is either most or least interesting, we'll have to let you know when when we've conducted the experiment, we're going to invite them to respond on the next episode so they can defend themselves, explain themselves, or humanise themselves to the extent that we weren't able to do it in these next couple of minutes. So, Beth, I'm going to ask you to dive on in here and draw out a name from the box. Oh
1: my goodness, so much pressure.
2: (laughs) Okay, who is it?
1: I'm not going to pronounce this correctly. Um, <laughs> Michele Guiffrida mm-hmm. uh, from PES. I PES,
2: the Socialist. Excellent.
1: Um, and she is from Italy.
2: Italy. Mm-hmm. Well, never heard of her. Sorry, Lena. Have mm. you heard of this MEP?
4: Unfortunately, not.
2: Beth, you've not heard of her. Me neither. Oh dear. No. Okay. Um, Lena, you're going to have to. <laughs> okay. Okay.
4: We have to get some luck here. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, my business partner will be happy now It's Bendit uh, Benditsen It's from the group of the European People's Party From the Partido Popular From Denmark
2: Denmark Can I see that the picture is well? <laughs> yeah Ah, okay, no I've, I haven't heard of him before
4: Me neither Sorry for my uh, Danish friends. It's gonna be a very well. quick
2: segment, isn't it, Beth? <laughs> Beth have you heard of
4: Ben? I have not. Okay. Your turn, Byron. I hope you would know what this one. Um.
2: Oh. Oh. Yes. This is literally <laughs> almost the first MEP I'd ever heard of. Okay. This is um, Pervenche Berès. She's from the Socialist grouping uh, and from the French Party Socialiste. Before I share what I know about uh, Ms. Berès, uh, how about you, Lena?
4: No, I really don't know her.
2: Have you ever come across her, Beth?
4: No, no, she no, no, no. is
2: a leading member of the left-wing tendencies within the Party of European Socialists, and she was a very powerful former chair of the Econ Committee. Mm-hmm. And so she's someone who's known to a lot of figures within the French Socialist Party. You know the Francois Alains, the Pierre Moscovici's, that generation of people. Mm-hmm. And she's been a long time MEP, and she's on our list of the forty most influential. MEPs, So, like, she's really one of those people who, even though she doesn't have the top committee job anymore, she pulls a lot of strings. She's very intellectually respected within the party. And my instinct is that we should ask her to come and explain a little bit about what she's working on and and what we should be paying attention to. I hope you enjoyed listening to that. Hopefully (laughs) we will be able to uh, get that running a little more smoothly in next week's episode. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got a minute, please remember to rate, review or subscribe to the podcast so that we can grow the community, tell people how we're doing and you can get it quicker each and every week. Thanks to Michelle Stoddart, to Andrew Gray, to Wei Dong Ling, and Antonio Fernandez for everything they do to make EU Confidential possible.